Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. I am really glad that you could join us again today. This is going to be a great episode. This episode has actually been recorded twice just a couple of weeks ago. Our guest, Brian Zahn, was on the show, and we had a wonderful discussion. It lasted about an hour, about the same as today. And there was a problem with my computer, and it did not record our conversation. Well, Brian was kind enough to come back two weeks later and have the same conversation again, and I think it was even better this time. He always has some wonderful insights. His new book, Water to Wine, is definitely worth your time, and I hope that you'll pick that up, whether you buy your books on Amazon or from the bookstore or wherever you get them from. I really think you're going to benefit from Brian's story, and especially after you hear our conversation today, I think it's just going to whet your appetite to hear a little bit more quickly, and I I promise to do this as, as fast as I can. I just want to remind everyone that I have a new album coming out on March 17th. You can find out more about it at rickleejames.com. You can pre-order the album if you go to rickleejames.bandcamp.com. Now, the thing is, if you pre-order on Bandcamp, you can actually download three tracks from the album right away. If you pre-order from iTunes and Amazon or any other place online, you can do that, but they do not give you... Uh, immediate tracks like Bandcamp does. So I just wanted to take the time to let you know about that at the beginning. I do have a few shows coming up and uh, some radio appearances in Chicago and in Michigan and different parts of Ohio. So make sure to go to my website at rickleejames.com. It's been newly revamped, newly reformatted, lots of new stuff on there for you to enjoy. I think you're going to like it. And uh, with, uh, I think that's all I have to say, actually, before we get into our conversation. It's always such a thrill to have Brian Zahn with us, and this has been uh, no exception to that. He is a, a gracious person, a wonderful guest, and uh, I believe he's doing great work there in St. Joseph, Missouri at his church. So here is my conversation with Brian Zahn. My guest today on the Voices in My Head podcast is pastor, author, and mountain climber, Brian Zond. Brian is the lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and has written several books, including A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, and Unconditional. His latest book, Water to Wine, Some of My Story, tells his story of disenchantment with pop Christianity and his search for a more substantive faith. Brian Zahn, welcome back to the Voices in My Head podcast. Good to be back, Rick. Thank you. I didn't realize that it's four, but I guess it's like I write a book and, and I get to do a podcast with you. I think that's what it is. That's right. That's I, I try to have you on each time when you write a new book, if I can. It's always a, an honor to have you. Uh, and even though this is your fourth time as a guest on the Voices in My Head podcast, it might be the first time for some of our listeners to hear you. I wonder if just for their benefit, if you could briefly tell us about your Christian journey, how you got into pastoral or ministry, your education educational background and really just how you got into church. Sure. Well, I am I am 56 years old, so that wants you to know how old I am. And uh, I am a product of the Jesus movement. And most, I think, of our listeners will know about the Jesus movement, this uh, phenomenon in the 1970s that began really among the counterculture movement that decided that... Um, you know, there had to be a Messiah better than the Beatles, and we can't find <laughs> Jesus. And, and it was it was a genuine movement. Now, it had, you know, it had its various issues. Its eschatology was terrible, and its ecclesiology was extraordinarily low. But still, there was a, a kind of purity, an energy, a passion, an authenticity about following Jesus that is, I think, part of my spiritual DNA to this day. But in 1974... When I was 15, I had this dramatic encounter with Jesus, and overnight I went from being the school Led Zeppelin freak to the school Jesus freak. <laughs> and uh, by the time I was 17, I was already leading a ministry, which I know is crazy, 
but it's what happened. It was a coffee house ministry, that's what we called them back then, that was primarily a music venue, and that's where I got to know a lot of the Jesus music artists, you know, like uh, Phil Kagey and Paul Clark and The Way and Second Chapter of Acts and Resurrection Band and all those, they would all come through. Wow. But there was also teaching involved. And by the time I was 22 in 1981, we realized that essentially this had become our church. And so I became the pastor of this church at the age of 22. But I'd already been leading this ministry that was something like a church for a few years, about five years. So I tell people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. And that is true. I really have. So that's how I got started. Um The Jesus movement sort of funneled me into the charismatic renewal, charismatic renewal, into various aspects of uh, contemporary evangelicalism, including certain aspects of what might be called the faith movement and religious right, all of which then would require some profound course correction in my life later on, which is a, a good deal of what my latest book is about. Because the book, even though I may hearken back and tell a little bit of my story, the book really starts from about 11, almost now 12 years ago, uh, when at the age of 45, I just realized that although where I had begun is where I needed to begin with Jesus, over this long haul, I had arrived at a place where I was profoundly discontent with what I call American pop Christianity, or maybe in a more pejorative manner, easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity. Now we've arrived at what what the book is about, how I found my way out of that and back into a more substantive faith. Sure. So, and I don't, I don't have any formal theological training, which I'm not in favor of. I never recommend that to anybody. And and in the book, I tell the story because I didn't have adequate theological training, then I had to go about making up for that, and I did so in a very earnest and self-disciplined kind of way. Um, But my story is perhaps interesting. I don't think it's one that young people ought to try to emulate. I wouldn't advise that. So uh, I'm a a product of a particular time and a movement that I was caught up in and almost accidentally ended up as a pastor. Sure. Well, and that's that's and it's, and it's the one thing I've done, Rick. I mean, I haven't. I've been in for thirty-five years. I've been in one church. I've been pastoring, leading one church for thirty-five years. So, if nothing else, we've had longevity. <laughs> that's incredible. And you know, I, there there tends to be almost an intellectual snobbery at times among those of us that have been, you know, to some formal training uh, for religion. And and yet most of the people I know uh, don't have endorsements by people like Walter Brueggemann like you do and friendships with people like him that are that are mostly self-taught. And, and I, I think that's a, an incredible thing that, that you have done so much on your own, and I, I'm so impressed by that. Um, so that, that's just really a fascinating part of your story as well and part of your growth, which, which we're going to talk about more. But most of our listeners probably know the gospel story of Jesus' first miracle, which was turning the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. What resonated with you about this sign from Jesus, and what is its significance in the telling of your story? That story there in John 2 has always been in one sense, it's like my favorite miracle story. And it, John makes a point about being the first of Jesus' miracles. And it's a completely, uh, well, it's an unnecessary miracle. I mean, we're not raising the dead here or healing the leper or the blind or calming a storm that threatens to, you know, drown everybody aboard the ship. It was a gratuitous miracle <laughs> that has a whimsical quality to it. And they're at a party, they're at a wedding feast that would ordinarily be, you know, two or three day affairs and somebody had not calculated right and the wine is beginning to give out and that's going to be a social embarrassment and the party's going to be over. And Jesus' mother has this strange instinct that perhaps he could do something about this, although the text is clear. Jesus has done no miracle. But apparently Mary senses that he's capable of it and that it might be time, and they have an interesting little back and forth, and it seems as if Jesus isn't going to do anything about it, but Mary says to the servants, well, whatever he says, you do it, and it's like there's a wink or something there, Sure. and he turns the water to wine. Well, anyway, 
as I went through this powerful transition in my life, uh, one of the recurring metaphors that I used to describe it was I was leaving that which was watery and thin in a search to re- recover the robust, even uh, intoxicating faith that is that is the historical faith of Christianity. And so I just latched on to that metaphor. I can't even remember when I did it. And, and in writing this book, which is more or less a, a spiritual theological memoir, I, I just at some point knew this was going to be the controlling metaphor throughout the book. And, and I, I like it. I'm glad that I did. I think it is an adequate description that I had reached a point in my mid-40s where I was in Cana and the wine had run out and I needed Jesus to do a miracle. And mm. that's what the book is about. I, I tell that story. Mm. You know, I've been in Cana and I've been in there many times. Uh, I But I've even done a wedding in Cana. <laughs> I did a wedding in Cana. And uh, I did not turn water to wine, though, but I did. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. It's not too many people that I know that can actually say they've done a wedding in Cana. And that's that's such a great illustration for your story, having read the book, too. Uh, Now, I've heard it said before that every human being is at least three people in the course of their lifetime because of the way that they evolve, grow and change as people. And I also know that we often emulate those people that we read and admire. I'm curious, who are some of the theologians and writers that influenced you in the beginning of your ministry, and how has that changed over the years? You know, I've always had uh, theological, spiritual, pastoral influences, and it has changed. And early on, my, my dramatic encounter with Jesus when I was 15 uh, was sort of facilitated by the ministry of David Wilkerson that mm. some of the listeners may be familiar with, with the, you know, the cross on the switchblade yeah. and his ministry in New York and all of that. And so David Wilkerson was a big influence on me. And that introduced me to Leonard Ravenhill, who I actually got to know and would travel to his house when he lived in Lindale, Texas. I would drive the nearly 600 miles from my house to his house and spend some time with him and talk with him and, uh, his, you know, people that may know only his books will probably get a very different impression of him than I have of him. Hmm. His books can be a bit austere and demanding and, and, uh, perhaps even off-putting to certain readers. In person, I found him to be very kind, a thoughtful man, a prayerful man, and was always very generous to me. And, and so he was an influence. And then I was just, from that world, if you're talking about David Wilkerson and Leonard Ravenhill, you're going to be influenced by what we call the revivalists. Charles Finney, John Wesley, George Whitfield, uh, you know, people like that. So that really was my, uh, my influence. Sure. I, I would say that in some ways I, I carry much of what I received from those kind of ministries even to this day. But in recent years, I can pretty easily, I mean, I've read so much and so widely over the last 12 years, but I could, if I have to, I can pick five. Now, when I say I pick, my, these are my big five influences, but there's a big 50. So if I don't mention somebody, they might be number six or 16 on the list, and they may be a huge influence, but if I'm going to give you a top five, I'll give you a top five. So sure. here they are, and they're in not the order necessarily of influence, but the way I remember them. Well, you mentioned already Walter Brueggemann, who has now become a friend. Uh, but I first just began. To, I, I read his. The first book I read of his was The Prophetic Imagination, which was one of those life-changing books. Yeah. Um, and so he he's the great Old Testament scholar, and I've probably read I don't know maybe twenty five of his books, something like that. I don't know. A huge influence on my life and thinking. Uh, then there's N. T. Wright. That's the New Testament scholar. Uh, I've read essentially most all of his works, which is a feat in and of itself. You know, this man is so enormously prolific. Uh, I can tell you a favorite work of his. It's one of his big books. It was his third in his five great big books that he has. Um, But it's Jesus and the Victory of God. It's about, I don't know, 600 pages, and that probably is my all-time favorite theological work, or at least all-time favorite New Testament scholarship work. Hmm. 
Hmm. Um, then I would have to mention Eugene Peterson, who gave me a new and fresh model for pastoring. Eugene has also become a friend. And uh, just I've read essentially all of his works as well. He's a big influence. Stanley Hauerwas would be the theologian. He, that's what he essentially is, is a pure theologian. And he's helped me to integrate uh, peace into my theology and has given me a lot of vocabulary for what I try to articulate about the peaceable kingdom. Uh, if people want to start reading him, I might start with his book that he co-wrote with Will, Will, Will Williman uh, entitled uh, Resident Aliens. Yes. That's a very good book. Yes. And with Eugene Peterson, the book I would recommend is his mm. memoir called mm. Simply the Pastor. You get Eugene Peterson's greatest hits in the form of a, a very readable memoir. Mm. And then the fifth one is maybe the one that might not be as well known, but I think he's an enormous thinker, and that's Rene Girard, who died not too long ago, within the last year. Mm. And at the, toward the end of his life, I was able to also spend some time with him. And this is this great uh, French thinker who lived almost all of his uh, career in the United States and, and – uh, Ended up finally at Stanford for many years. And uh, if, if any of our listeners have read A Farewell to Mars, uh, they might recognize, if they're at all familiar with Gerard, that there's, there's numerous passages in that book that come from uh, Gerard's influence on me. So Walter Brueggemann, N.T. Wright, Stanley Highwatch, Eugene Peterson, Rene Gerard, those are my big ones. Mm. Well, you know, I didn't mention this last time we spoke, and, and you mentioned Harawas, but I used to live uh, in North Carolina, very close to Duke University, mm-hmm. and often on my day off, I would make my way over to Duke, and uh, a friend of mine was actually Harawas' assistant, really? and uh, and so there was uh, a, a few brief interactions, and, uh, and, and I would pray at Duke Chapel quite regularly over there, and, and uh, would always take a chance to go to the campus bookstore and find anything new by Harawas and Willimon that I could that was, uh, and I would just devour him. Great, great theologians for he sure. Really, and also a very prolific writer. It's hard to keep up with him. He puts out so much. That's that's very true. Well, let's. Uh, speaking of great writers, we'll get back to you here. But uh, in in Water to Wine, you tell the story that in late August 2004, your church leadership team was going on a three day retreat. Three days before this retreat, you prayed a simple prayer. Jesus, tell me what to say. As soon as you prayed that prayer, five words shot into your mind that you didn't even really know what to do with at the time, but you knew they were from God, and you knew they were important. Cross, mystery, eclectic, community, and revolution. Can you talk to us about how your understanding of those five words developed over the next few months and and what they have meant to your ministry? Yeah, that really was a very significant moment. You just did a good job summarizing it. And those words were gifts. And I don't mean that this kind of event is terribly common. But there are those moments, it seems, when God in his graciousness just gives us a gift. And when I did pray, and I said, you know, I knew that our church was moving into a transition. I needed to get away with the leadership team, talk about it. I didn't know what to say. Jesus, show me what to say. And these five words came to me. And it's interesting because I really didn't know what they meant. Uh, I would spend the next several years kind of unpacking these words. But they were signposts to help guide us during our transition. And what I came to understand them to be was these five words, cross, mystery, eclectic, community, revolution, were course corrections to help us find our way out of five tired isms that were very prevalent in this pop Christianity that had been my world forever so long. Mm. So that the word cross was the alternative to consumerism. And uh, that probably... I mean, I can make a case that consumerism may be the single greatest challenge to authentic Christianity in the American context. Um, you know, uh, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. We say, I shop, therefore I am. It, it, <laughs> we ground our being in that of being consumers. And, of course, that is antithetical to the way of the cross. So the cross became a way to correct consumerism, Um 
mystery was a correction to what I really could call, sometimes I'll say certitude, sometimes I'll say I'll make up a word, know-it-allism, but really what we are talking about is fundamentalism, which is a kind of wrong-headed reaction to modernity, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, but I needed to embrace some ambiguity, some uh, certainly the mystery of the faith as a as an antidote to the seduction of certitude, which is one of the hallmarks of fundamentalism. Eclectic, that might be the easiest one to understand. Eclectic was what gave me permission to stop being a sectarian. Hmm. And really what I had done is I, I had encountered Jesus in the Jesus movement, had then kind of moved into the charismatic renewal. And so I... I that was the world I knew, a charismatic expression of American evangelicalism. And I was very tribalistic, very sectarian, even though I didn't belong to a particular denomination, who I had respect for were people that were more or less within that same kind of tribe. Well, since 2004, in this great migration, uh, I have obtained the passport to travel freely and widely throughout the entire body of Christ. And so... I think of the body of Christ, this is just my own way of understanding it. I'm not saying this is definitive, but I think of it as comprised largely of six components. Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican, mainline Protestant, Evangelical, and Pentecostal. Of course, there's overlap and, you know, various nuances, but I think that covers a lot of it anyway. Sure. And I knew the charismatic world and that was it. And I thought, you know, the, the Orthodox and Catholics basically needed to get saved. The Anglicans, you know, probably did. The mainliners, those liberal mainliners, you know, they definitely needed to get born again. And all of that has evaporated, is gone. I mean, what did I do yesterday? Yesterday I spent the afternoon with Father Elias Esau, who is a, uh, he's got an interesting story. He's, he grew up in Syria in an Orthodox family had an evangelical conversion through American missionaries, came to Missouri, was uh, attended uh, Mid-American Nazarene University, graduated from there, then went to Midwestern Theological Seminary, a Baptist seminary, and was a Southern Baptist pastor for 20 years before in 1997 becoming an Orthodox priest. And now he's the priest at St. Basil Orthodox Church in Kansas City, and he's become a dear friend, and I spent the day with him. Uh, I'll be spending this next Sunday afternoon with some, uh, well, the, the prior of the Conception Abbey, the right. Benedictine Monastery, not too far from here. I'm going to spend some time with him. Uh, and then I have my Anglican friends, my mainline friends, and and this may be controversial, maybe highly controversial to people that are still tribalistic and sectarian, but I'm, I'm being completely honest, and people can disregard it if they like. But I am of the opinion that if we talk about the body of Christ being comprised largely of Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, whatever I left out, uh, Pentecostal, uh, Anglican, we um, I think each one of these are custodians of various treasures and that they would all more or less have about, about the same amount of truth. It's just they have different areas of, of emphasis. Mm -hmm. And having this, having, becoming a Christian eclectic has given me a passport to travel throughout the entire body of Christ. And I would say even today, Rick, my reading is probably fairly evenly divided among these various, uh, schools. You know, I, I think I think of the illustration of a, a large chapel. I mean, a large uh, cathedral. Think of, think about a cathedral that maybe in Europe or Notre Dame or something like that. You, they will then have chapels around uh, the edges of inside. You know, they'll have various chapels. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, we have an Orthodox chapel and a Catholic chapel, an Anglican chapel, Protestant chapel, Evangelical chapel, Pentecostal chapel, and uh, I like them all. Hmm. And, and under different circumstances, I could see myself belonging to any one of those. As it is, I'm kind of a spiritual hobo these days, <laughs> riding the rails, a little bit homeless, but you know, I'm just playing the cards dealt with me, and, and I have found friendship and hospitality and warmth and acceptance in all of these areas. So that's, that's what I mean by eclectic. Um, the fourth word, community, is a very necessary correction of the hyper-individualism 
that is so prevalent in American culture. We have a very individualistic approach. So that Jesus, we, we like the term personal Savior. Well, yeah, I, I do certainly believe that we can have a personal relationship with Jesus, but that very quickly distorts into a private relationship, and that is not permitted. And I think salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging. It's not a Jesus privately giving you a ticket to heaven when you die. Rather, Jesus personally sponsors you into his salvation community. But it's always communal in nature. And then finally, and this this may also be, this is a big one. Revolution is the word uh, that I use to pull away from what I call a politicized faith, or I just make up a word, politicism. And it's not that Jesus isn't political. Jesus is highly political, but in a way that no one else imagines. Jesus, in fact, has his own politics. Right. He has his own kingdom, by which we mean government. So um, I had been just slowly seduced into being a part of the religious right as a de facto religious wing of the Republican Party. And once I saw the radical nature of the kingdom of God, I knew that wouldn't do, and that Jesus is the one who offers the true revolutionary politics of the kingdom of God in Christ. Perhaps the only truly revolutionary politics the world has ever seen. And it's a politics that is based not upon force, but upon love. So that the kingdom of God persuades by love, Witness, reason, spirit, rhetoric, and if need be, martyrdom, but never by force. The problem with partisan politics is it is a competition to gain the means of legislative coercive force. Well, this isn't how the kingdom of God ever comes. And so I really gained a revolutionary understanding of the kingdom of God, and so that, that becomes the fifth word. Whew, that was, I, you know these words are in me, Rick. I can just sure. I go on and on about these words. So they, they were a big deal for me, for our church. And I, I suppose for about five years when I was invited to speak in pastor's conferences, which I do quite often, pretty much all I ever spoke about was these five words. And, and it was interesting. When I would do that, the response was always the same. Mm. I w- it, it, was, it was a very demographic response. People, you know, pastors, maybe youth pastors, or or younger lead pastors, music ministers, in their 20s and 30s would come up to me and just thrilled and want to talk with me. How do I get more of this? People in their 40s and 50s, not so much. And so uh, that, that became very predictable, and that's it's kind of the way it is. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I mean, you unpacked a lot there, and it's great to read about that even more in in the book as you talk about that. And just the way that uh, I I think maybe God's even still working that out, you know, the meanings of those words in in new ways. And uh, it's it's neat to see that working out, and it, it helps us on our journey to hear the way that you've come on yours. Well, I, I want to talk about prayer. One of the things that I think you are becoming known for is your prayer school at Word of Life Church. And I know that prayer is a vital part of your ministry. And it's wonderful that in Water to Wine you let us see the track of prayer that you personally use every morning. You call it a liturgy that is brimming with life. Has embracing a more contemplative and liturgically informed prayer life changed you as a person and even as a pastor? Probably nothing has been more responsible for how I communicate what I say, what I write, than that single practice. In fact, um, the books, my book on forgiveness, Unconditional, and it's also published under the title Radical Forgiveness, but they're the same book. One's hardback, one's paperback. Uh, that's Christianity Reimagined Through the Lens of Forgiveness. And then there's the book Beauty Will Save the World, Christianity Reimagined Through the Lens of Beauty. And A Farewell to Mars, Christianity Reimagined Through the Lens of Peace. Those three books, which kind of compose a comprise a trilogy, although I never actually say that that's what it is, but it, they are. Mm-hmm. All three of those books were born during periods of contemplative prayer, or what I would call sitting with Jesus. Mm. So, um, I would say the, the most beneficial thing I do pastorally is to teach my prayer school, which I'll be doing six times this year. And the reason I have to do it so much is 
I try to keep it under a hundred, and they 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 fill up. And you understand, I first just began to teach the staff how to do this, and then people in the church asked me, "Well, teach us how to pray." And then people, then the word just got out. Well, you know, Pastor Brian in St. Joseph, Missouri, does this. He teaches he teaches people how to pray. He does it by by giving them a morning liturgy of prayer and showing how it works and how to participate in it and what you should what your basic posture toward prayer should be. And, and I know it helps people. And so what I would typically do is take five weeks to teach people this, just one day a week, either morning or in the evening. And I would have, uh, at first I had small groups, like 12, 15 people. And I would, for five, let's say, consecutive Wednesday mornings or Wednesday evenings, I would teach them this. Well, then people began to ask me, say, well, will you record it and put it online? And, you know, Rick, I record mm-hmm. everything. It's, we podcast everything. It's all free. It's just, you know, whatever we preach, teach, it's out there. It's free. Go get it. But I hesitated on this. I think, you know, I don't think this is, I don't think I should. I think this is too intimate. It's like whispering secrets. And I think there are some, I mean, as much as, you know, I participate in and celebrate technology and the Internet and how we can use it for information communication, there, there are still a few things that I think, no, this should be face-to-face, flesh and blood. And so I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I just feel like I shouldn't. And then people would say, well, yeah, but we live in Seattle hmm. and, or wherever, and we can't come uh, for five consecutive Wednesdays. Would you do it over a weekend? And I thought, well, yeah, I can do that. And so we started doing that. And I'm just always shocked. It always sells out instantly. I don't even promote it. I just, you know, tweet something. Okay, we're going to have a new one. And it fills up. Uh, I was I was preaching in Houston two weeks ago, doing four services there at Ecclesia, where Chris C. is the pastor. And I was leaving Sunday night after the fourth service, and this lady came up to me. And she said, oh, I'll see you in April. I'm so excited. Hmm. I'm coming to your prayer school. I said, well, that's great. That's great. Because we, we've had people from now, I think, I don't know, it's like 30, 31 states that have come. And I said, great. And she said, yeah, my husband gave that to me for Christmas. He got me the plane tickets and all of it. <laughs> I thought, I can't. I don't want to be someone's Christmas. <laughs> it's too much. That's pressure. But, but the, point, the point is, Rick, there is obviously a need especially in the wider evangelical world, that people have been given really an intolerable burden, and that is they have been told to pray but not taught how to pray. Yes. And so I love teaching people how to pray. I'm very, I don't know, I, I feel very confident that it helps people. I know it does. And so they told me today, in fact, that the April 15th and 16th prayer school, no more rooms done, uh, so we've got a, we've got two more this year. I I just remember the next one. Well, we got several, but some of them are just the local ones. Um, there's going to be one though, July 15th and 16th. These are always a Friday and a Saturday. Mm. So you do have to miss a Friday. It doesn't go over into a Sunday. It's Friday and Saturday. So the next one is Friday and Saturday, and people can just Thanks. Google Zon Prayer School and they'll find it. Well, you're you're like the you're like the pearl jam of prayer. You keep selling out on your prayer school there thing. You go. <laughs> now that's really fantastic, and and I have to tell you that um, I I do different um, sorts of prayer practices throughout the year, but I always try to change it up a little bit in the season of Lent. And uh, I've been using um, your prayer uh, outline that you have in the book that you use in the morning, each morning, as my prayer time as well. And I, I too, have found it very beneficial. And my, my family, we also have a prayer book that we do a morning and evening prayer book. And the other day, one of the prayers that's in your book was in that book. And I said to my wife, I said, oh, that's that's what I've been praying with Brian in the morning <laughs> out of his book. And it's just really great to... Uh, to, to kind of be able to be a part of that, I've always found prayer books to be so helpful uh, once I discovered them uh, years ago. And, yeah. and, and and it seems over, you know, right on, on that same subject of using prayer books and things in your prayer life, it seems that over the last decade you have found a lot of value in more historic, orthodox, liturgical worship practices and theology. Uh, talk to us a little about your journey back 
to the ancient faith as your primary focus in ministry? Well, when I first really began to um, feel this profound discontent, and you have to remember, I'm talking about as we're moving into, let's say, the year 2000. Uh, I, I would be 41 at that time, and as far as Americans like to measure success, I mean, everything was successful. I had a large church, large staff, large budget, large campus, all of that. I mean, all of what we consider success, I had. And I was increasingly discontent. Mm. And I didn't know what to do about it. It it wasn't like a midlife crisis where I got to go buy a Corvette or something like that. It wasn't that. It was that I had reached what you might call in some ways the upper echelons of evangelical influence. And I thought, well, there's just not enough here. It's not. There's not enough substance. It's too. It's too thin. It's too light. It's. It's. It's like. It's like Bilbo Baggins saying, "I feel thin, uh, sort of stretched, like, like, like butter scraped over too much bread." That's how right. I felt, and I didn't know how to find at this point uh, the the rich sources of contemporary Christian thought, and so I just said. I don't know what else to do but to go back to the earliest foundations of the development of Christian theology. And I began reading the Church Fathers. And that was a, well, you know, there's no going back after that. Because then I began to become acquainted with what we generally call the great tradition, that is, what the Church has always believed and practiced. And I, I didn't feel necessary to to belong to any particular dom- denomination that has its rootedness in these ancient practices, but rather I felt that I was to become acquainted with those great traditions and then bring them into my own sphere of influence. And I did that initially by beginning to read the Church Fathers. Uh, but that's a daunting task. So for some of our listeners that may be at least somewhat interested in this and are, are serious about it, I would recommend a, a relatively accessible book it's not terribly long. I mean, it's, it might be 300 pages, but I'm, we're not talking 3,000 pages. Um, the, the Spirit of Early Christian Thought by Robert Louis Wilkins. That's a great way to introduce yourself to what we call the Church Fathers, which basically means uh, the earliest Christian theologians who were tasked with giving definition to what it means when we say we believe that Jesus is Lord. We confess that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the essentials of the faith, how did they arrive at that? And that's what the church fathers did. That's who they were. And, um, I mean, at some point, you know, I just began to find Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa and Maximus the Confessor more engaging, more relevant than the latest superstars of pop Christianity. Mm. Something like that happened anyway. Yeah. No, that's that's great. That's uh, matter of fact. While you were talking, I actually just uh, added that to my Kindle books on yep. my phone. That's that's great. I'm gonna check that one out as well. Sounds like a great book. It's it's a really. I mean, it's serious. It's not it's not necessarily light reading, but it's accessible and it's a great summary of the most important achievements of the early church fathers. Mm. Well, as a pastor, I I know you've been intentionally bringing your people along with you on this journey. Can you share some of your thoughts on baptism and the Lord's Supper and how a greater emphasis upon these things has guided the journey, not only for you, but for your congregation as well? Yeah, I have definitely become a sacramental Christian. Uh, That is that I, I can't imagine... Sunday morning without um, participating in the Eucharist, which is simply a word that means Thanksgiving, Greek word meaning Thanksgiving, which was you know one of the earliest terms for communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, as I travel occasionally, I don't I don't miss too many Sundays, although I do a little bit more and more. And occasionally I'll be out of the country and I'll preach some church that um, is evangelical, perhaps in its uh, history. And they'll have Sunday morning, they'll have everything but communion. And if my wife is with me, we'll always end up saying to one another, well, it was great, but it didn't. Was it church? I, I, I really think that the church gathers to the table of the Lord. 
And um, I confess the real presence of Christ. I, I'm not I'm not interested in engaging in Thomistic theology of transubstantiation. I think that's a grand attempt to say too much. I simply say what Paul says. Paul says the bread which we break. Is it not our participation in the body of Christ, the cup which we bless? Is it not our participation, koinonia, fellowship, sharing in the blood of Christ? So in the mystery of the Eucharist, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. And this opens us up to, I mean, there's, there's a richness. Once we discover that it's sacramental, it can move us towards understanding that all of life has a sacred component to it. Same with baptism. I don't I don't try to say exactly what it is, but it is the formal induction into the body of Christ. I think that's very clear, and it's not merely symbolic. Now they are now of course there are symbolic aspects of both communion and baptism, so that they are symbolic. They're not but what we say is they're not just symbolic, which is nothing more than an utter capitulation to secularism. Because secularism is this modern ethos and ethic and philosophy that insists that there is nothing inherently sacred in the world. It may be conferred with our language and our practice, but there is nothing inherently sacred. Mm. And Christians beg to differ, and they say, no, there are sacramental aspects of life. And, of course, what that's trying to move us toward is that, in fact, all of creation is a sacramental gift from God. Mm. Wow. That's that's awesome. What a beautiful way to look at that. Uh, so so how is this transition going in your church? And how has the return to the ancient faith been received by younger people in your congregation? And how has it been received by the older generations? Well, this is the counterintuitive thing. If you haven't had any experience with this, you might think, if I'm talking about tradition, the old people would be down with that and the young people go, oh, no, I don't want any tradition, when in fact... It's exactly the opposite. Hmm. I think you know I'm I'm a I'm a baby boomer. I'm one of the I'm one of the younger ones in the baby boomers, um, but I'm a baby boomer. And baby boomers were I, I suppose modernity at its highest moment, and uh, or, or or if not the highest moment, then the very end of it, because everything that comes after me is definitely moving towards postmodern, and. One of the hallmarks of modernity is that it fancies itself as traditionless, that it is not that, and it's it's critical of all traditions. Postmodernity, for all of its weaknesses, at least brings this to the table. It holds up a mirror to modernity and says, "You know what? You're just a tradition of critiquing all traditions. That's all you are." And I think I have now. I think I know I have discovered that in our own church, and it bears this bears out throughout America. Uh, young people are, are, are feel very homeless, and uh, they have a lack of rootedness, and they don't want to think that Christianity is something that's fifty years old. Uh, they want to, they want some rootedness. And they even, they even want the symbols of the ancient faith. And so as we begin to talk about the great tradition and calendar and liturgy, sacrament, it has been young people that have been the quickest to embrace that. It's been the older people that have been, uh, the most resistant to it. Which I find very interesting. I do too. And I, I've, that's been my experience as well. So it, it's fascinating to hear that. Well, what are some of the challenges that you faced as the pastor of your church trying to bring your people along with you on this journey? Well, just that. It's just that. <laughs> no, well, no, that's not the biggest thing. Uh, if, if you want to talk about the five words, cross moving away from consumerism, hmm. uh, you know, people will applaud that. But we, and I'm, I'm saying we, I'm not saying they, I'm saying we are consumers. We are formed by the liturgies of advertisers from the cradle onward. Um, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, he is a cradle Catholic. Well, we're all cradle consumerists. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's not hard to be shown from the words of Jesus that consumerism is a completely self-destructive way to approach life. 
it's easy enough to convince people theoretically of that. But if you really, as a pastor, especially of a large church, say, I'm not going to capitulate to consumerism, but rather I am really going to seek to lead and teach and disciple toward the goal of making authentic disciples of Jesus rather than giving them what they think they want, um, you're going to lose people, at least for a time. Because that's so radically different than anything we've experienced. So that created problems. Uh, mystery, moving away from fundamentalism, that probably lost some people. A collective, there, there are some people that gain their security by being very tribalistic, and they want to believe that you know we're the ones that have all the truth, or at least you know most of it. And so when I began to speak favorably of my Orthodox friends and Catholic friends, etc., there were some that would be alarmed at that, because their idea of security within the Christian faith is very narrow, and it, it's by belonging to a particular tribe. And so that probably alarmed people. Uh, community, I don't know if that created too much trouble. I mean, we do like uh, to be pandered to our individualist needs, but I think we can be shown fairly easily that that's just untenable if we're going to belong to the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. But the big one, Rick, is that last one. Mm. Revolution is the word that I use to challenge the idea that there is a nice, easy fit between being a follower of Jesus and being simply a red-blooded, patriotic, predominantly right-leaning American. And that kind of challenge is what I had the biggest pushback from. And I just say it this way. It's just, you know, it's our podcast here, Rick. I can say what I want, I suppose. Sure. But I lost all my Fox News Christians. Mm. That's what happened, and um, it, and and I don't want people out there to say, "Oh, so you're what an MSNBC?" <laughs> I've never watched MSNBC in my life, as far as I know. I, I try not to imbibe too much cable news. I think it's bad for the soul. <laughs> but um, but there, but you know, we have been through a, a period beginning in the '80s with Jerry Falwell and Pat Roberts, and some of these people I knew, um, where there was this. Assumed idea that being a good Christian was pretty much the same thing as being a loyal Republican. And when I began to challenge that, when I say, well, look, I think pro-life is a very good way of understanding the politics of Jesus, which is why I'm against abortion and war and against predatory capitalism and against keeping health care unaffordable for millions and against the death penalty, etc., well, you see how that doesn't line up easily with anything. And that probably created the most cognitive dissonance among certain people in our church, and they eventually just felt like I, they couldn't be a part of that. And I understand. I mean, I, I, I think I wish they would have come with me and stayed on the journey. I think it would have been good for their soul. But I, but I forgive and I don't judge. Um, and I tell that story in the book. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's, that's one of the, the hardest things sometimes is – uh, the people that we lose along the way, and yet sometimes losing them actually makes way for more, you know, and and it kind of opens the floodgates at times. And, well, I, I, I'm always humbled by the number of people in ministry that listen to this podcast, and we have everybody from senior pastors to children's pastors to youth pastors, music people, and just lay people who who serve in their church. And so this question is really for them. I'd like to ask you as a pastor, what advice would you give to someone in ministry who may be finding themselves in a similar place as you were, sensing that God wants to completely remake and renew their ministry, but they aren't sure how to get there? Oh, you know, I, I meet with pastors every week, maybe twice a week. I'm meeting, there's a, I'm meeting with a pastor that's coming from out of state to meet with me tomorrow. Two pastors from Oklahoma are coming to see me this weekend. And I always feel like uh, any advice I would give is entirely inadequate. Mm. Uh, I want to be sympathetic. I understand one of the most difficult things in the current American context for a pastor to do is to grow while being a pastor because growth necessitates certain change. Um, but pastors are viewed primarily through the lens of politics. And so what we would call change, development, in the political context is called waffling. He waffled. 
he, you know, he changed his mind on that. He can't be dependent upon. Well, that's you see, you see how difficult that becomes. Yeah. In my case, my case is unique, somewhat, in that I am the founding pastor of a non-denominational church, and so I have a lot of authority. Uh, it's it's pretty it would be pretty difficult, you know, barring you know moral failures or something like that. Uh, I'm not going to be fired. I can be left, but I'm not going to be fired. But the point is, I actually do have the authority to move my church in new directions. That may be very risky. I I risk a lot. I can lose. You know, we lost over a thousand people. Mm. But 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 at least I could do that. Uh, you know, not everybody's in that situation, so they're going to have to weigh some things. Uh, if we're talking in terms of the great tradition, I think the easiest way to begin to introduce it to your church is through a stronger emphasis on the church calendar. Um, people like Christmas and Easter, and those are simply, you know, two aspects of the church calendar, but just begin to introduce the idea, well, you know, uh, Christmas, it's not just one day, it's 12 days, and it's preceded by a whole season of preparation called Advent. Uh, Easter is many weeks long, but it's preceded by the, the journey with Jesus toward Jerusalem and his death, burial, and then his resurrection called Lent. And I, I think introducing people to the rhythms of the calendar is a good way to once again restore certain aspects of the great tradition and then maybe move towards some incorporation of liturgy and some incorporation of maybe move towards a, a more sacramental vocabulary and uh, you know if, if you're a church we were a church that for a long time you know communion was a few times a year well move to you know once a month and uh, take your time uh, realize that that people don't like sudden change um Sometimes, as I look back over my own journey, I think, you know, maybe maybe I did things too fast. Uh, there's a Bruce Coburn line that comes to mind. The opening line of the song, uh, The Whole Night Sky, the opening line is, uh, They turned their backs, I made it too hard. Every place they've touched me is a laceration now. And I think about that more often than I would like. But on the other hand, I look at what I did and I think, well, I took 10, 12 years to do it. Yeah. So maybe I didn't do it too fast. Maybe some of – so the other bit of advice, and again, I don't like the word advice, but I'll just share what I've learned, is that uh, inter, if you feel like you're in a position as a leader to move your church in a healthier direction, away from, you know, pop evangelicalism, Americanism, all that, realize that it will cost you. It will not be painless. It will not be without paying a price. Now, I would be the first to say I believe it's worth it. But everybody has to make their own call on that. But I, but I, I wouldn't want to suggest that you can do what I did without uh, any pain, without any blood, without any loss. I simply say it's worth it. And, and, and to me, it's not even... Uh, it's not even comparable. I mean, I've never been more uh, satisfied, more excited, more energized about being a Christian than I am today. But it's come at a cost. It's come at a price. Mm -hmm. uh, I was willing to pay it, but it wasn't cheap. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's it's interesting. Maybe that's part of our, our makeup is being made in the image of God and being slow to change, too. Because that, doesn't it seem like sometimes... God doesn't make any move quickly. It seems like he's in it for the long haul. <laughs> it's like we pray and we wait and he's like I've I've got my timing. I'm I'm doing this. <laughs> so. I think patience is the heart of wisdom. Mm. And I think my most foolish decisions in life have been when I was simply impatient, when I was in a hurry and I thought everything had to happen immediately. And as I think about the people I've known throughout my life that I would really describe as wise, as I consider their lives, one of their chief characteristics is their patience. So yes, I, I believe that as we approach the challenge of making disciples of people who are already thoroughly discipled into a rival religion that goes by the name of America, I know, that, mm. I know that's a very blunt way to put it, but yeah. I'll stand by it, you will have to be patient. Don't think, oh, I'll preach a six-week sermon and straighten all this out. No, this is a, this is a decade-long project or decades-long. 
So be patient. Uh, let Jesus do the heavy lifting by which I mean just, you know, do some sermons series out of the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and don't always put too fine a point on it. Just maybe lead, you know, put the dots on the table, but let uh, but let people connect the dots on their own. Well, that's that's I'm, I know that's going to be some hugely helpful advice to a lot of people. Well, we're getting near to the li- my near the end of my list of questions, and uh, this is my favorite one to ask because I know you're a huge fan of rock and roll, as am I. Uh, but for a time as a, a younger pastor, you felt like you weren't supposed to embrace that kind of music. Now, by contrast, in your new book, you actually include a link to a playlist of songs that helped you on this journey, many of which are straight-up rock and roll songs like The Pretender by The Foo Fighters, The Passenger by Iggy Pop, Wake Up by Arcade Fire, and, of course, plenty of Bob Dylan tunes. So how did coming back to rock and roll help you on this journey? I love rock and roll. (laughs) Quote Mick Jagger, it's only rock and roll, but I like it. You know, and it's it's part of who I am. Um, it is just a part of who I am. That was a part of my awakening as a teenager. Uh, I, I'm a quasi-musician. I'm a terrible musician, actually. I'm a terrible guitar player. But as I sit here, from where I sit, I can see my black Gibson Les Paul across the room. I can't play it real well, but I can play it real loud. <laughs> <laughs> And I can, you know, I can do a whole set list of Bob Dylan songs if I want to get out my acoustic, and those are more accessible for me. But it's part of who I am. And the, yes, there was a period of time when I, when I just sort of drifted. I don't. know, It's a strange thing. I don't know if I can communicate this. This might sound silly to some people. Uh, but I sort of left a lot of that, not because I ever wanted to, but I just felt like, well, you know, I'm past now, dignified. And then I finally just at one point realized this is this is part of who I am. I, I was I was I was in a city and I, I don't want to be too specific. I don't want people to know who I'm talking about. But I was in Texas. We'll say that. And I was speaking in a big conference and all the speakers had gone out. They they said let's go shopping. I thought, oh, dear Lord in heaven, I'm going to go shopping. <laughs> and uh, so you know these big name preachers they were all buying watches and stuff and. I just kind of was there. I was being a little bit grumpy, but that's all right. And they said, well, you, you ought to buy something. So I said, all right, come with me. I'm going to buy something. And I took them over. There was a music store. And I took them over, and I bought – this is when CDs – this is like in the 90s. This is when the – when you know, you had to rebuy your collection because you had all this vinyl, and you had to get it in CD. Sure. And uh, I bought Deep Purple Machine Head. That is a great album. That's a, that's a straight up rock album. That's the that's the album that starts with uh, "Smoke on the Water," and uh, my 1973. I remember my grandfather gave that to me for Christmas, and which is just today it, it's just like endearing because my grandfather was about he was about a straight laced guy as you could imagine, and Deep Purple was not on his uh, playlist. Uh, but, you know, I had my little Christmas wish list, and, and I remember my mom telling me, she said, I want you to know your grandpa, he went to, he went to music land, and I can just see my, my very straight-laced, white-haired grandfather walking in and say, I need Machine Head by Deep Purple. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I bought that. They, they said, well, what do you, you can't buy that. That's, that music's of the devil. And I said, oh, shut up. Your watches are of the devil. It's not, it, it's not, <laughs> and it's a part of who I am. And, yeah, I did. I put this playlist of, I don't know, maybe like 30 songs. I don't know how many songs. I'm looking at here in the back of the book. There's some good songs on there. Uh, And the playlist is, some of the songs are quoted in the book. Some are, there's aspects of the book that remind me of when I was hearing that music. And others are, I don't know, some are very, very personal. I probably wouldn't share why I put it in there. But, um it's a part of who I am, Rick. Mm-hmm. It's it's a part of my artistic appreciation. I love Dostoevsky. I love Terrence Malick's films. And I love Bob Dylan and Neil Young and Led Zeppelin and U2 and the Beatles and the Stones and Arcade Fire and Queens of the Stone Age. I love that stuff. And it has not diminished me. It's Somebody would ask you, if somebody asked me, was well, that made you more spiritual? I'd say it makes me more human. And I'm very suspicious of becoming more spiritual. 
I think what I am to do is to become more authentically, truly, healthily human. And toward that end, uh, rock music is part of who I am. And I don't apologize for it. No, I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> Talk me out of it. Nor should you, in my opinion. And I'm really glad you mentioned Terrence Malick, too. I I have Tree of Life, the three-disc set, sitting right here on my desk as we talk. It's a, it's a beautiful film. What a wonderful film. Uh, Let me give you a film recommendation. Sure. Calvary. Oh, we have actually done a podcast about that oh, show. Really, I get the, our leadership team is going to. Well, I'm, I'm requiring them to view it on their own, and then they're going to come over to my house, and I'm going to give them my my film critic analysis of it. <laughs> it's a matter of fact, we've I've talked with friends about um, kind of doing movies on the opposite extreme of each other, sort of a back to back, and having a discussion. And I, I would love to do Calvary along with Spotlight. Sometimes as, uh, Spotlight is a, a, a movie. I think it's still in theaters now, and it's about the uh, the abuse scandal and the, the Boston Globe uncovered with priests. Uh, and yeah. so it's sort of the other side of the coin. And um, it, it would just be a very interesting discussion point. And and it's it's a very interesting movie about um, really what can happen when there's no accountability for those in places of power, especially in the church. And, and it's a, it's an important lesson for yeah. sure. But Well, Calvary is a great movie to watch during Lent, especially if somebody, if you could watch it during Holy Week, that would be the time to watch it. Yeah. Starting uh, last year, it, it, be, it became my ongoing uh, Good Friday tradition to, uh, to watch that film. I plan on doing it again this year, but. Well, thank you so much. I I would love to to close our conversation out. Um, if if you have the passage in front of you still, uh, I'd love to end our conversation by having you read from your new book, Water to Wine. Um, this passage in particular sums up a lot of our postmodern struggle when we dialogue with people who say they are spiritual but not religious. And I, I wonder if just before you could read it, because I've had a couple people ask, um, I. I've heard some people wondering uh, what you mean when you say that atheists are spiritual these days. So just before you, you read this section, are you able to maybe elaborate on that a little bit for those that had questions? Yeah, I mean, spirituality has become so amorphous that, well, in fact, we, there are atheist churches. I mean, the, they get together, sing songs, talk about their spirituality, but with no formation, no connection with any tradition. So what I'm doing is reclaiming the word religious, which I think the the animosity toward the very... Religion can be bad, too. I understand that. But religion is necessary if our goal is to pass on our faith from generation to generation. And so since spirituality is embraced by everyone, I think, well, no, I, I need a more rigorous word a word that that actually requires something of me, and so that's why I've embraced the word religious. Because the just the unthinking critique of religion is uh, is not inherited from Jesus, but from Voltaire and the Enlightenment. Mm. And so I think it's time for us to recover that word in a good sense. Sure. Well, if you don't mind, uh, do you have the passage in front of you that maybe you could read? I, I found it here in the book. I'm going to read okay. the book. I think I'm going to back up like two or three sentences, I think, to give it a, I think from where the selection you had. Um, sure. I'm going to start a, a sentence or two before that. It's about a page and a third, so it'll take me a moment here. But Sure. Well, you can, you can read as much as you like. I haven't rehearsed this, but I, I hope this comes out all right. So here we go. This is uh, beginning on page 68, 68 and then into 69 of Water to Wine. In keeping with what I consider a penchant for a healthy dose of rebellion, I unabashedly call myself religious. Self-identifying as a religious person may be one of the last acts of rebellion possible in our libertine era. In the secular West, the religious person may be the last rebel. So let me say it deliberately and with a hint of defiance. I'm not just spiritual, I'm religious. Anyone can be spiritual. Atheists are spiritual these days. So, of course, I'm spiritual. We all are. But I'm also intentionally religious. I accept the rigors and disciplines of a religious tradition. 
I do so because I refuse to leave my spiritual formation to the fads of amorphous spirituality. I confess sacred creeds and observe a sacred calendar. Most of all, I'm a religious person because I pray. Prayer is what religious people do. In that sense, I have a solidarity with all who pray. I have more in common with the Egyptian Muslim who prays five times a day than with the European secularist who never prays. I have more in common with the Indian Hindu who prays to Brahma than with the American consumerist who prays to no one at all. I have more in common with the mystic Rumi than with the deist Jefferson. That the majority of American evangelicals feel at home with an Enlightenment secularist, more so than with a Muslim mystic, shows just how really secular we are. But neither am I just generically religious. I am specifically and intentionally Christian. The creeds I confess and the calendar I observe are Christian. I pray as a Christian. I pray to the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray the prayer Jesus gave his disciples to pray. I pray the historic prayers of Christianity. How we pray is how we are formed. The Hindu is formed by Hindu prayers. The Jew is formed by Jewish prayers. The Christian is formed by Christian prayers. The Muslim is formed by Muslim prayers. The secularist is formed by not praying. The spiritual but not religious person is formed by only praying whatever and whenever they feel like praying without any respect for a received tradition of prayer. They are essentially secularists, sporting a spiritual accessory, whether they know it or not. Mm. That is some powerful stuff, Brian. That's one of my favorite passages in, in your new book. And listeners, uh, if, if I, I, I'm sure you heard when I mentioned it, but Water to Wine is the new book by Brian Zahn. It's really worth your time. I highly recommend it, as as I do all of Brian's books. They've been very formative for me and a lot of our listeners. So, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time to be here again, and thank you for being one of the voices in my head this week. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com. Follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames. Like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames. And keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace who raised Christ from the dead strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.